we are reaching the halfway point of the Holy Following Christ series. Today is halfway day. Uh, with this series, we sincerely hope and pray that a bigger and, and a more beautiful picture is beginning to form for you around what it is to follow Jesus with your life. Uh, so far, we've looked at the fact that we are to be spirit-empowered people. It is our dear, 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 dear hope that you have become a person who the Spirit is empowering. Uh, and we've looked at the word anchored life. It is our dear, dear hope that you have become anchored into the Scriptures a little bit more as we've done that. And in these last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the consecrated life and we've been hoping that in this moment of the world, in this moment of space and time, our lives would be set apart for something else. Today, we're going to be looking at the consecrated life one last time. And so what is consecration? Well, consecration comes from this word holy. Consecrated is a word speaking of being holy. Holy means set apart. It means we live differently amongst this time, in this space and in this place. We find ourselves as the people of God amongst our culture. Holiness starts, first of all, in our hearts. As Christ's followers, we are invited into this work of heart reorientation, which will then lead to the right actions in the world. Holiness is to live another way with our, our bodies, literally flesh and bone, our whole bodies, which are, as the scriptures have been showing us, they, this is the temple that God is calling the new place for his Holy Spirit. Your body is that temple. Holiness is fully found in Christ, God in flesh who came to fill the holiness gap we looked at last week. And he offers to us this grace of holiness and abundance given to us. We said last week, holiness is just not an abstinence from and a disappearing from and a lack. It's actually a presence in our lives. Holiness is our set apartness to be the new people that Christ called his temple and his high priests, those who carry a different spirit in the world. And so today, I want to finish this little facet by talking about something really practical. I want to talk about if we are to be consecrated people, then how do we stay set apart? How do we stay set apart? Now, at the very start of this part of the series a few weeks ago, we began by exploring a bit of a look at our culture, and we talked about how our culture is driven by hedonism at the moment. We live in a world that is selling us a plethora of pleasure options. It's a world that is like a buffet to our senses. We must live a life of pleasure our culture screams to us. We must do what feels good, our, our culture screams to us. And oh, by the way, avoid suffering at all costs, our culture screams to us. And so to sum that up today, I want to sum it up in one word, and I reckon it's this. We are living in a culture of feasting. We're living in a culture of feasting. You know, experience on experience on experience on experience. I want to see more, 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 more. Indulgence on indulgence on indulgence on indulgence on indulgence. I want to try more, 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 more. Sensuality on sensuality on sensuality on sensuality. I want to feel more, 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 more. This is the feast. And as, as 
is it actually satisfying? Oh, no. See, that, that's the problem with a hedonistic vision. It can't be satisfied. It only ever wants more. It's forever in this endless pursuit to acquire pleasure and to be happy, and at all costs and all kinds of ways, and don't let anything stop you from achieving it, and if you stop feeling good or if you stop feeling happy, well then just go out and try that experience again or that indulgence again or that sensuality again, but you have to go bigger and you have to go better than last time. More, more, more. Our culture lives in this compulsive quest to satisfy an ache that is within and its answer is come and eat at the buffet. Come and eat at the feast. The problem is, no matter how much we eat, we never seem to be filled up, do we? And in contrast, this series has been calling us to see Jesus' vision to a life that is abundant, a life of the feast. And his way of putting it is in this term parisos zoe, these Greek words, parisos zoe, which means a life abundant, a life so full and satisfying, more than you can even imagine. And Jesus is promising for us a life that will be better than we can ever picture. And it's one where we will be experiencing goodness and peace and joy and love. And it's all better than we can imagine. It's all better than we can put into mind. And as we've looked over these last two weeks, part of the way that that works, part of the facet here with Jesus's life, is that it was not satisfied by the world's vision of completeness. It was not satisfied by the abundance of the feast. In Jesus's life, we see it was fulfilled by the Father. The Father was showing him a life of holiness. He was living abundantly, not in what he could achieve himself. He was living abundantly in his communion and his commitment to his heavenly Father. So as we've been seeing and we're looking at for these last couple of weeks in this facet, his life then became otherly in that very nature. It became some other story. It became different. It actually became a bit weird. It stood out. It was something else. It was a counter way. It was a way going in a different direction. And so when the world is feasting, what do we do with that ache for satisfaction? Do we just feast alongside with it? Or is there another way to the endless pursuit? So today, I wonder if we need to look at the counterway and follow Christ a little bit further in the same way that he did to see what he might show us. And follow is the key word here. We're following Christ as he did Let's do too. And so in the tradition of following Jesus, Christians have been outworking their apprenticeship to him, their, their discipleship to him, their imitation of him in a way of life called the spiritual disciplines or the spiritual practices or habits. And here is a compiled list of doing life the Jesus way. Here's a bunch of practices that the church over the last 2,000 years has been endorsing and doing and, and, and doing an imitation of him. And here they are as a compiled list and you'll notice that there's two columns. There's a column on the left called engagement and there's a column on the right called 
abstinence. Let's start with the engagement practices on your left. As we lean into the various teachings of Jesus and the various ways of doing life in imitation of him, we lean into doing things that will be engaging practices. They will lean us forward into the right activities in the kingdom of God and in the world. So we lean into things like celebration or worship or studying the scriptures. These are activities that are to be enjoyed and to be made the most of. They're, they're actions that press us forward and lean us into God in their very nature. But, but as an analogy, as we would all know, if we were to feast for every single meal, if all we were to ever do is feast, 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 our bodies would end up overweight and we would end up unhealthy, wouldn't we? Like we're actually, we can't live only on that side. Anyone else know that moment on Boxing Day? <laughs> Hello? When you've had way too much to eat on Christmas Day and you're like, yeah, I need to just chill out today a little bit. Uh, it's salad for me and a really good walk. You know, like it's like part of our body just saying, hey, you packed it yesterday, now chill out a little bit. Now, now this is the nature of our bodies telling us we need a counterway. You cannot live just only on that side. You cannot only feast. And so for all of the feasting and the engaging in the spiritual disciplines, there's also a whole other side equally of abstinence. Oh, this isn't clicking. Can you do that for me, please, David? Um, abstinence. And abstinence practices are chosen practices to balance us out, to bring us back from that feasting world, to curate our hearts into another direction by doing the opposite direction. Rather than pressing us forward into more, 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 we actually pull back into less, less, less. You know, for example here, um, simplicity is a good example of one. You know, simplicity as a spiritual discipline is to strip away our tendency for consumeristic loves, you know, this cultural slogan that we live in, which is, you'll only be happy when you have everything that you want. You know that one? When you have everything that you desire, then you'll be happy. That's the consumeristic story. Well, we choose in the discipline of simplicity to abstain from buying more and to be content with a smaller and limited amount of belongings and what we have. And we choose not to further this consumeristic pattern of spending and consuming. Why? So that we have less stuff? No. It's not just like minimalism for minimalism's sake. Why do we do it? We do it so our hearts will be trained into gratitude. That's why. So we don't do simplicity for the sake of just having like a minimal cool vibe in our house that looks great in our kinfolk magazine, although it does look great. We do it so that our hearts will be trained into true gratitude. It's the means to an end. Uh, or another one, silence. And silence is to choose to stop talking. Some of you should definitely break. No, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I should definitely. It's also to choose to stop having noise covering up the true condition of our inner world. It's to close our mouths. When in this culture, everyone seems to be raising them at the moment. And it's to turn off the noise of those noisy rants and all of the commentary and all of the things that distract us from the true condition of inside. Now, um, in December last year, um, I felt that the Lord actually called me to, in my own quiet time, in my own devotionals, I felt like the Lord just called me, get off social media. And, and for me, it's been a practice of silence. 
for nearly 10 months now, I've been offline. For nearly 10 months, uh, I logged in once to post the fact that our, our daughter had been born, and then I quickly checked back out again. But it has been incredibly life-changing to do so. 10 months of choosing a social media abstinence that has been a practice of silence. It's been me turning away from having a platform to be heard, but it's also been me turning away from a platform to be consuming and to have the noise dialed up. Instead, I've chosen to dial the noise down. And, it, and, it, and it's interesting, it's transformed my inner world. Uh, I was having these like rashes at the end of last year, and actually I haven't had a rash since. Um, it's leaving me less worried about the things that I just don't need to actually be worried about. Hello, anyone else? Um, it's also recalibrated a healthier form of connection in me and in my heart. And it's drawing me to actually pay attention to my soul. So that's the point. Is the point get off social media? No, the point is I want those things. It's the means to that end. But today I want to focus on one practice in particular just for this last bit together. One practice that I think really gets the consecrated life going. A practice that really forms us in this counterway of a hedonistic feasting world. Today I want to look at fasting. Fasting as a practice. And so fasting is the counter practice in a world that's going mad on. So at the start of this talk, I asked, how do we stay set apart amongst a world so set on seeking pleasure, of experience, of indulgence, and of sensuality? Well, the answer is we must become people who learn a counter way of fasting. And why fasting? Because remember, holiness, as we've been looking for this last couple of weeks, holiness is about our whole bodies. Holiness is about our whole being. And so holiness, literally in its function, seeks to rescue us from a culture where the view of our bodies is being diminished, where our body is just to be pleasured where our body is being made lower. And what fasting does is it pulls us up into a new reality where our bodies, we see our bodies as the temple of God. And what we do and what we don't do with our bodies matters. So therefore, we matter. You with me? So let's just start by looking at a couple of moments first of where Jesus fasted, and then we'll unpack a little bit of how we can do this. So firstly, Matthew 6, 16 to 18 says this, and when you fast, this is Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, then no one will notice that you are fasting, except your Father who knows what you do in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. A couple of little things. Firstly, notice it says, when you fast, not if, when. So Jesus is saying here, when you fast, you are going to fast. You will fast when you fast. And he does this in the Gospels. He shows us by his very example of fasting. And he talks a little bit more, as I'm going to show you in a minute. So note, like the other passages as well that we've looked at for the last two weeks, look at what Jesus is doing here. He is taking the outward display of what it is and he's saying, that's not the point. 
Looking like a mess and showing everyone you're fasting is not the point. Okay, just like he did last week and the week before with the text we looked at. He is getting rid of this outward symbolic showing and he's saying, no, 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 it's about something else. It's about the condition of your heart. Don't put, a, don't put on a show, put the show away, he is saying here. So Jesus is getting back to the heart of matters. Quite literally, the matter will align with the heart. That is the point here. Jesus is saying, that matter may align with the heart. Now, before we dig too deeply on this, um, we will in a moment. Let me just go to one other moment of Jesus talking about fasting and we'll come back to that thought. In Matthew 9, 14 to 15. One day, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? And Jesus replied, well, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. If you were here last week, this is a little bit like a similar passage to last week's one, okay? There's some stuff going on here that's interesting, so I'm just gonna unpack this really quickly. In this moment, what we see here is a very legitimate question. Okay, these people come to Jesus and they're saying, um, we're all doing what we're meant to be doing, Jesus. Um, your guys aren't. Legitimate question. Reminds me last week about that whole thing of the hand washing, right? Your guys aren't hand washing. And we talked about that. Well, this week is, your guys aren't fasting. What's up with that? Now, what's going on is that the law required fasting on the day of, on the day of atonement. Okay, on the day of atonement, they were to fast. But that actually by law was the only day that the people of Israel were all meant to fast. There was one day that they were meant to do that. The other fasts had actually been sort of bolted on by various religious teachers and rabbis over the years, especially by groups like the Pharisees, okay? They'd bolted on a bunch of other stuff to this idea. And many of the Pharisees fasted two days a week, um, especially in a very dry climate, and they'd fast without water. Um, and they'd do this because fasting was seen as an important practice to go with prayer and to go with like penitence, to go with this thing of like, repentance. Um, and so it would be unusual, what's going on here is it would be unusual for a disciple to, to, um, who is being trained to follow their rabbi to then actually be doing the things they're not meant to be doing. Because what that's then saying is, well, if they're not doing what they're meant to be doing, then actually it's the rabbi's fault. The rabbi's not teaching them properly. So therefore they're not doing the right things. So this rabbi isn't teaching legitimate things. So you see sort of the train of thought here and how that's working. And so what's going on here is by saying your guys aren't tracking correctly, they're actually saying, Jesus, you're the one that's at fault here. Um, but Jesus' answer is stunning because what Jesus then does is he just responds with this other idea, this, this metaphor. And he takes this idea of the cultural wedding feast. Now, our idea of a wedding feast is like a couple of hours after the wedding at a reception, right? Where we all have our little name tags and all those sorts of things and find your spot and there's some speeches and da 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 da, da And the gluten-free people get their special gluten-free meal and all that kind of thing. Well, actually, the way it worked back then was that it was a seven-day celebration. A seven, I mean, that's a party. Like, none of you have invited me to that version of a wedding reception. I'd be quite keen. But a seven-day party. And the rules around this were really strict. You're not meant to be fasting during a wedding feast. You're meant to be feasting. You're meant to be enjoying what it is. It's a celebration. And you're not even meant to mourn. You're not meant to be mourning during those seven days. You're meant to be feasting and enjoying that moment. So Jesus uses that analogy. He puts it in front of them and he says, he says you know, these feasts, um, you know, during, sorry, Jesus makes the analogy and says that this is the similar appropriateness for this moment with him. 
He's saying, there will be fasting after the feast, but right now it's feast time. I'm here. Now Jesus is saying, after he's gone, they will resume fasting. The followers will be fasting again. So we will fast, but just not right now. So according to Jesus in those two passages there, we should fast and we should fast for the right reasons. Now we're going to get to how to fast in a bit, but just first let me start with the big question, which is this, what is the right reason? Like why? Why should we? What is going on there? Scott McKnight in his book, Fasting, says this, fasting is a response to a sacred moment and not just an instrumental act we use to get what we want. Fasting is a response to a sacred moment. Now, McKnight is using the term there, sacred moment, and sacred, well, that's, that's just another word for consecrated, another word for holy, the moment that is beyond us, the moment that is transcendent, the moment that is other. And so sometimes we find ourselves in life, don't we, with this deeper other need. You know, maybe it's when we utter those words, God, I can't do anything about this. I need you. That's a sacred moment, right? A holy moment. And a moment of reaching into the otherness. You know, sometimes it's when that bad health report comes through. We must turn to God as a result. Sometimes it's the urgent request from a friend or a loved one saying, this situation's on for this person. We need you to respond. And you say, I'm turning to God with that. That's all I can do. Sometimes it's the despair or the pain that is from a sin in our lives that we just cannot get on top of. We cannot seem to break its power in our lives. So we need to turn to God. Sometimes it's a lament or a grief of a situation that we see in the world or in someone's life next to us or in our own. And so we don't have words for it yet, but we just simply turn to God. We show up to God with it. All of this to say, all of this and many more situations, that this is, this is what it is to show up to a holy reason, a holy moment, a motive of holiness. But fasting often hasn't been kind of communicated like this and conducted like this, has it? And so what I want to be clear about is I'm not talking today about, hey, let's fast just because. That's not, that's not the motive here. Or let's fast just as another thing to add to the list. That's not the motive here. Why should we fast? Well, let me come back to that earlier thought from Jesus. We fast that matter, our bodies may align with the heart. We fast that our being may enact and feel something that our soul is sensing. You know, in Matthew 26, 41, Jesus urged his disciples in a very sacred moment for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that sacred moment, he said to the disciples this, keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. You know, we fast because often our bodies are detached from our discipleship. And Jesus is urging here in Gethsemane, He's saying, awaken the body to play an important part in this consecrated life of God you do. Bring your body into congruence with the Holy Spirit that's been given to you. And so 
We practice fasting by abstaining from food willingly for a period of time because we are convinced that it is good for our body to feel in need of something. That's why. That's why we fast. Now note, I did say from food. I said from food. And in the Bible, fasting is always, always an abstinence from food. This abstinence is so that your stomach can feel hungry and can feel the ache as your cravings stop being met for a while. And yeah, 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 there are other forms of abstinence like coming off social media or a Netflix fast. But that's not what the Bible's talking about. That's not what the Bible's talking about. It is talking about your stomach, your literal stomach. So when we talk about biblical fasting, what we are talking about here is this old practice, age old practice of doing something that you will feel hungry in your stomach. And then your stomach may tell you of your need. And so the early church took Jesus's lead and they went on to fast and they fasted really well. Uh, The Desert Fathers and Mothers were an entire movement within the fourth and the fifth century of church history who saw themselves as an abstinence movement, actually. They they, they mimicked Jesus's journey into the desert of fasting as their own. They then went into that themselves into the Egyptian desert. They, They literally moved their lives out into the desert away from the kind of excess of this Roman Christian world they found themselves in now in the fourth and fifth century where they were not the persecuted people anymore they were the abundant and excess people and so they took themselves out to be consecrated people literally living in, in caves out in the desert fasting as their lifestyle but fast forward to today and in reality fasting is now one of the least used of all of the practices of Jesus and as Scott McKnight said you know our ideas of it are usually that we are fasting to get something <laughs> like some sort of cosmic hunger strike for God. And many of us, many of us don't actually do it regularly unless something big comes along and then suddenly it's like, oh, I should do that fasting thing I heard about once. I should give that a go. Let's give this a go as a sudden urge to kind of get God's attention. You know, some of us might do a form of fasting like for for Lent, Maybe people fast for Lent. I'm willing to bet some of us did a food fast for Lent, which was probably like, hey, no sugar or like no alcohol, but I'm willing to bet, I don't think any of us probably did a full food fast. You know, again, it's like, it's kind of like a diluted form of the old practice. And today, when I talk about fasting, what most people are thinking about is not actually a spiritual practice. What most people come to mind and think about is actually a health one, because we're motivated at the moment by sort of health talk around things like intermittent fasting as a dietary option, or the five and two diet. You know, these are kind of more like common medical health dietary kind of conversations that people are having around fasting. Fast because it's good for your body weight. Fast because it's good for you to lose weight or whatever. It's not seen as a spiritual practice. It's seen as some sort of health benefit. And that's sad because actually, after being such a dominant practice for the church for two millennia, in more recent years, the spiritual practice of fasting has quite literally almost been taken off the table Few of us are actually doing it regularly, and few of us aren't doing it. A few of us are doing it as a spiritual practice. But I wonder, like, 
what if we were to bring it back? You know, what, what would a group of people who regularly set apart a day of their week to fast, what would they experience in their lives? What would be happening in their midst? Like, what, what would be the payoff if a group of people decided to take fasting seriously? What does fasting actually do to us? Well, I've got a couple of answers here. Here we go. To answer that, here are the main benefits of fasting and uh, the counter way that start to come from them. Firstly, fasting starves the flesh to starve out sin. You know, fasting is an ancient discipline to, to break the power of the, the flesh desires that we have, sins, cravings, that we may then feed on the Holy Spirit. Fasting is this counter practice, this counter way to the gods of our age, little g gods, where our body has been sort of put into this different realm of seeking pleasure, sensuality, and indulgence. And it cho- we choose then to practice fasting. We then see our flesh not as a vessel for the culture to have the final say over, but instead that our bodies may be consecrated and given over to God in an intentional way. We may then be able to control and learn to, uh, to, to, to rein in those desires, to feel the ache and the hunger that comes from within and to hold it with our creator in his presence. You know, restraining from food is an enacted way to tie to a desire to restrain from all sin. Uh, Thomas Akempis says this, restrain from gluttony and thou shalt more easily restrain from all the inclinations of the flesh. Uh, John Mark Comer, he says this, when we fast, we learn how to turn our body from an enemy in the fight against sin to an ally. You know, this isn't about abandoning the body. It's about taking seriously this task of learning to listen to it, to hear its desires and to deal with them. And by fasting, we actually learn to tame our bodies just a little bit more, bit by bit, and we learn to get back some control. As Pete Scazzaro says, this is a fantastic line, the body is a major prophet, not a minor one. There's a few of you nodding. Our body is a major prophet in our spirituality, not a minor one. You know, that rash I told you about from last year, that's a prophecy of my life that something's not right. <laughs> you know, living, living with aches and, and with sort of like this internal tiredness all the time, it's a sign that something's not right. You know, live, living with the sense of kind of burdens and weight upon our lives, literally felt in our bodies and stress, it's a sign that something's not right. We're invited to something different. And so this picture of fasting, oh, Siri's just activated. Shh, go away. Um, go away. Uh, the, the, no, shh. Oh, it's doing that wheel. It's about to say something to me. One sec. All right. Uh, ruining my flow here. Uh, this isn't about abandoning the body. This is not about putting the body to another side. It's about taking it seriously and learning to listen to its desires. So hunger becomes like a magnifying glass that is placed over our souls. And we can easily spot what needs to be attended to and begin to do so. Which brings me to the next point. Fasting as prayer of hunger and spirit. In fasting, the the great hunger of the heart and the mind is answered as prayer permeates the body itself. 
You know, our prayer following in Jesus' example is for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. But why does it seem to be so difficult to know God's will in a specific sense? You know, all throughout the scriptures, a great myriad of characters, both very admirable, but also some decidedly less so, they, they ask God for things and God answers you know, Jesus himself pleaded with his disciples to understand God, not as some uncaring or aloof character in the sky, but actually as a father who wants to provide for their needs and love them. And complicated as that may be, we can wrap our heads around praying prayers of that and we ask with petition. And fasting then becomes a request of prayer. On another hand, it becomes, it becomes like a bit of a foreign concept to then fast to ask for something. But in one sense, fasting means is a means where the disciple then actually um, comes to Jesus, not just praying with ideas and not just praying with concepts, but praying with their whole body. So remember, you're not just a spirit in a body. You are a spirit and a body. And the discipline of fasting draws attention to both our spiritual and our physical being. It knits them together. And so in fasting, the great hunger of our heart and our mind and our prayer list gets permeated into our body itself. And we feel the hunger of request in our stomach. So the scriptures tell us God's responsive, that he actually acts differently when, when, we, when we act and pray in certain ways. And with any practice, fasting is not some manipulation switch to try and get God to act. It's not that, but what it is, is it's a way to ask God to act. It's literally a way to do it. And perhaps most importantly, this method is important because it engages our whole body. We don't just have a mental list that we're working our way through. We feel the need, literally through our stomach. So when I fast, when I fast on Wednesdays, I find that it fosters quite an internal intimacy between me and God. And amongst my whole week, it becomes a deeper space and a more attentive moment in which God's voice has got far more room to speak to me. You know, because God is relational, isn't he? God is relational with us. And in that relationship, like any relationship, we hear one another better when we actually focus and we get rid of the distractions. And so fasting, it's not some hunger strike to try and make God do what we want. It's a way of enacting and expressing to God our hunger for Him to move in our life and in situations. And so finally, the third one is fasting is solidarity with the poor and the hungry. You know, we train our hearts in compassion, don't we? That unites with our brothers and sisters around the world. And, and just, to, just for a little bit of a picture here, let me just take you to one of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah. Um, at the time of Isaiah's prophetic ministry, this community of God was becoming quite known for their intense spirituality, but it was a personal self-centered faith that was neglecting the kind of just community that God was looking for. And Isaiah confronts the community of faith about fasting to remind Israel of their identity and their vocation. And in some ways, Isaiah redefined fasting with these words. This is what he said. He says this, it's not, is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? 
And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Isaiah 58. You know, what Isaiah presents here is another dimension of fasting as a spiritual practice. Fasting is not only our stomach aching. Fasting is actually to stand in solidarity with the poor. And when we choose this fast, what we do is we choose to allow our bodies to feel hunger and this hunger becomes an act of solidarity with those who are hungry by no choice of their own. So we align our bodies to connect with those who are suffering and we choose to unite our hearts to those who are experiencing injustice of all kinds around the world. Those who are experiencing systematic poverty, slavery, hunger, homelessness, racism, debt. We choose to align ourselves with them. And this fast, this fast actually becomes a practice that then trains our hearts into compassion and unites us with our brothers and sisters around the world. And when we as a community are moved with compassion and, and we work to alleviate the injustices that are around our city, we are, we are reflecting God's heart into the world. And this kind of fast is incredibly simple and it's been practiced by thousands of years, over thousands of years within the Christian tradition. Um, Caesarius of Owls says this, let us fast in such a way that we lavish our lunches upon the poor so that we may not store up in our own purses what, was, what we intended to eat, but rather in the stomachs of the poor. You know, with this fast, the invitation is not only to give up a meal, but to use the money that you would normally spend on feeding yourself to then feed someone else. Um, my friend Clint, he pastors a church called The Well down in Christchurch. And uh, as a church community, they're currently doing a 21-day fast as a community. They're about day 14 or 15 now. I caught up with him earlier this week and I just asked him how it was going. And he said, oh, we're on day 10 as a family uh, doing this. And he said, it's, it's been the most fascinating thing. Our household budget has already halved. It's halved. I was like, whoa, man, like living costs. I was like, man, it must be epic to be saving that money, Clint. That's great. And he just looked straight back at me and said, yeah, we're giving it away. We're giving it away. And I just thought that is the solidarity with the poor moment just beautifully summed up. When we choose to fast, we then actually create a, a margin to then actually be able to be generous from. Isn't that amazing? And so here we go. Fasting, in summary, I know it's been a bit of a blitz today, but um, here we go. Fasting starves our flesh to starve out sin. Fasting is prayer for the hungry spirit that is within us. And fasting stands us in solidarity with the poor and the hungry. And all of this, all of this is an abstinence. It's an abstinence. It's this means of seeking holiness by seeking to be set apart in a hedonistic world, seeking experiences, indulgences, and sensuality. And we need to find a way of counterbalancing that feasting story. And fasting, fasting is the way. Finally, I want to say this very clearly. All of this is just an invitation. It's all an invitation. I want to be very clear about that today. No one here, not one of you has to do this. Not one of you has to sign up to this at the end of my talk today. I'm not about to roll out some sort of grand 40-day fast for Central Vineyard, okay? That's not happening. I want to be very clear about this today. But I do want to invite you to a practice that would then embody holiness, and so I want to just give you three things. If you've never fasted before, okay, if you've never done it, if this is all foreign to you today as you start, as you're like, okay, I want to get started, what do I do? Here's entry level practice number one. Just try fasting 
for the first time this week. Simply pick a meal, skip it. And in that skipped meal, intentionally spend time with God praying. Read Psalm 51 verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me as I fast. Just start there. That would be entry level beginning point. Next click up, bit more of a baseline practice, something to try and find a rhythm with, would be this. Adopt a way of fasting once a week. You know, some of you have probably fasted a bit. This is your next click. You could try this. Pick a, pick a day and regularly put it in your schedule that that's your day of fasting. Um, I fast on Wednesdays often, and that usually just means going right through to dinner time and then joining my family for dinner that night. And that's the end of my fast. And I find it's the day that I dig us deep into prayer. I dig deep into intercession. And it's the day that just seems to just sort of blow open my experience of God every week. And I just want to offer if that's something that you're doing regularly, here's one last little thought. What would it look like to stretch a little bit further? What would a stretch practice of fasting look like? So if you're, if you're regularly practicing once a week, what would it look like to go a little bit further? Um, expand your practice by taking up the practice of fasting within, as I spoke about last week, an accountable community. Find a couple of friends, a couple of people who you can together create and curate a bit of a list of needs and things that you desire and together make a little bit of a covenant, a little bit of a decision together to say, the four of us, every Wednesday, are going to be fasting for these four things and we're going to keep going and going to keep going and we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going until there's breakthrough or until we feel like the Lord says to stop. Um, and who knows, maybe like my friend Clint, as a little group, you could become a group of people that save up a bit of money to put into little missional initiatives or something like that and pass on that money that you've saved together. So those will be my three practices. And with those invitations, um, this finishes up our three weeks of looking at the consecrated life. And so to conclude the series and to land the plane now, I just want to offer a very simple benediction, but I think it's the benediction that sums up the last three weeks. Okay, so I've tried to bottle three weeks of looking at the consecrated life up into, some, into the smallest word count I could. And here it is. May we seek holiness with our bodies. May we seek holiness with our bodies. This is the call from Jesus to us. This is the urging of Paul and Peter and all the other apostles. And it's the beckoning of the Spirit in this moment. You know, as we stand in this age of moral, sensual, indulgent, and experiential feast, may we become holy people. May we become those who are set apart and living it with our very beings.